Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. Hey, good day. All right, and away we go. All right, this is the last time. Last time. I know there's a lot of Indians. Uh, This is the last time we will be in the hard sayings of Jesus, or difficult sayings of Jesus, depending on how I said it and depending on what session that was in. Uh, We are going to actually be looking at three sets of scripture today, which seems, I know, quite ambitious, uh, but at the same time, I think it's something that we'll be able to handle just fine. Uh, We're going to start with uh, going back to the Lord's Prayer. We spent a little bit of time at the Lord's Prayer, uh, oh, it's probably three or four weeks ago now. When we talked, actually, no, it was probably the, I think it was the first one. Uh, when we talked about forgiveness, we spent some time in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, here, uh, we're going to return, but this time we'll be looking at the part of the Lord's Prayer that has uh, temptation and discuss what that looks like. After that, uh, being at uh, Holy Week, uh, the week before Easter, and today specifically being Monday, Thursday, I thought it makes sense to talk a little bit about the, uh, well, it's not the Lord's Supper, it's actually the time. Well, it's the end part of the Lord's Supper going into the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is uh, <clears throat> eventually taken prisoner. And we'll, we'll talk about that as well. The difficult sayings of that is Jesus asking his disciples to uh, sell their cloak for swords and what that means, what that looks like, at least a version of what that means. So without much more time wasting, let's uh, get going here. And what I'll do is just kind of get us going is I'm going to read all of the Matthean version, so the version for Matthew, which is Matthew 6, 9 through 15. I'm going to read that version of the Lord's Prayer. We'll talk a little bit about that. We'll talk a little bit about temptation. Then we'll go into Luke, and uh, we'll look at Luke uh, 11, 1 through 4, which is a little bit of a shorter version of the Lord's Prayer, and uh, and discuss that one a little bit, and then discuss even more on temptation, So and or testing, depending on how you want to use the word that is being used in the text. So let's, uh, let's read this, and uh, we'll, go, we'll go on, onward and upward. First nine of chapter six, this is just right after, um, in Matthew, this is just right after Jesus is kind of explained what not to do with prayer, not to be like the hypocrites related to how you pray in, pray in the synagogues or on the corners uh, of the streets and, and that sort of thing, and how they are to pray in a way that is more humble and a way that is more authentic in a way that is less about them and more, of course, about God and that relationship they have with God. So as we look at this, verse 9 here of chapter 6 of the book of Matthew, pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You may see that last part there probably in brackets or parentheses because that was added later on. Uh, <clears throat> depending on who you ask, will determine uh, when it was added. But it was um, something that was uh, was brought later on after uh, what Jesus said. So some would say he didn't actually say that last part. And some would say he did. Up to you. Um, no vote for me on that one right now. So what we looked at here is what they refer to as the Matthean version. That's just a fancy way of saying Matthew. Or, and then we'll look at the Lucan version, which is, of course, the fancy way to say Luke. You have Markin as well, but we're not going to talk about Mark uh, today. As we've known for the past eight weeks, this is the eighth week, uh, it's been mainly Matthew and Luke. 
and we didn't actually have time to jump into Mark, which is just fine, unfortunately. But um, it's just the way it, the way it was. So uh, the Mathean version is uh, the most popular of the two. Uh, as we look at these uh, two versions, uh, what we want to see from it is that we possibly could get different meanings of the prayer based on different textual variations, uh, which is why having multiple translations, I, I typically have two in front of me when I do this class, There's, but I've got about five, six, seven here in this space uh, that I will sometimes reference. And uh, the reason we do that is just to kind of see how different people have translated uh, the Greek and the Hebrew or versions of the Greek and Hebrew uh, over time. So that makes it just very much more interesting. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church uh, had its Latin version of this prayer, and that seemed to have shaped a lot of how we say this prayer today. They kind of made it mainstream. I mean, it was it was actually prayed in the first century, especially the, the Matthew version was played in the first century, but it seems like uh, some of our Roman Catholic friends really took this on and, and went with it. One other thing we noticed about translations, especially when it comes to like this, if you looked at, I believe it's verse 12 when it talks about debtors. You know, if you saw a translation, for example, in Scotland, we get debts uh, or debtors. Uh, but in England, we would have got the word, if it was translated in England or in English, not Scottish, uh, we would got, uh, we would get uh, trespassers or trespasses. It's fascinating. And it's just something to keep in mind, uh, depending on what part of the world you're in. Um, one example I've seen is there's parts of the world that have never seen a sheep. So how do you know what a sheep is? Uh, so they uh, so they have to translate in a different way. They have to translate it as maybe something, uh, uh, an animal that they're familiar with. Some people think that's a good idea. Others don't. Totally up to you how you want to do that. But what I say is that depending on what part of the world you're from, words mean different things. Uh, objects mean different things and are symbolized in different ways. Uh, that's kind of a side note. No reason to stick on that one any longer. Uh, as mentioned in the Mathean version, uh, it is used more now, and it's, uh, it was, like I said, was true in the first century. Uh, the Lucan version was most likely the original one, and the Mathean, uh, Matthew, and some of the editors and scribes along the way uh, lengthened it, and as was used early on in that first century uh, church liturgy, and continues to be used in liturgies up to this point today. Uh, both Matthew and Luke were trying to make a point about prayer and the significance of prayer in a believer's life. Uh, we are to model the habits of Jesus' prayer's life, and that's what he is showing us, a model. Not we have to say this same prayer over and over again, but we can model this idea of the prayer that he is giving here. What we notice also about the two is that in Luke's version, Jesus is, has just finished praying. We don't know exactly where he is praying. Oh, well. Actually, if you look closely, we, we know. But he had just finished up a, a time of prayer. And what we see here in, in the Matthew version that we just read, uh, he provides several examples about how not to pray. So he's been, actually, he was talking with the disciples and then brought this up versus being by himself praying and the disciples coming in and asking about how to pray. And they're specifically asking how to pray uh, like John the Baptist's disciples did. <clears throat> and more details on that when we get to Luke's version of this. Uh, like I said here in uh, 6, uh, 9, uh, this prayer is more of a, um, it's not a directive. It's, it's more of a, a model or a template about how to pray. Uh, <clears throat> sometimes we use this prayer and other prayers as mantras to repeat over and over. And in, and in some cases that's fine as long as they don't become meaningless uh, to us. It, it does bring peace to have a, a prayer that you repeat over and over. I absolutely believe that. Uh, and it brings security, and it makes us feel that we're getting closer to God with that. And I think as long as that's happening, it's great to be able to have uh, to pray that way. But as soon as it becomes rote and uh, meaningless, then you have to be careful that you're just not doing it to just do it out of habit. 
One that you, uh, people use a lot is actually out of uh, Psalm 46, and it's Be Still Know That I Am God, which is actually really good, and I've, I've taught on this uh, verse before, uh, out of context. And I apologize for those who don't like that teaching out of context. And I typically do not do that, but uh, it has become a very popular verse. You see it up in Hobby Lobby and Michael's uh, Hobbies, whatever it's called. And uh, we actually have the sign in our house, and it's actually very nice to know, to, to, to be still and know that God is God. And that he is in control. And the thing is, if you actually go back to chapter 46 in the psalm, you'll notice that this is the people of Israel uh, seeking uh, protection. Whoa, seeking protection from God. And uh, it is actually a lot of battle scenes and military terminology surrounding this uh, in their hope that they will not be destroyed by whoever is coming after them. So it's, it's, again, one of those things that, if you're not careful, it can be taken out of context and used incorrectly. Uh, when when I use it, be still, know that I'm God. Uh, I, I'm not using it because I'm about to be. I'm going into battle. Uh, it's more of, or at least military battle, uh, but it's more of just uh, a peace, a peace that can come over us, knowing that God is is God. Yet, I digress. Our focus here is is not on the entirety of the Lord's Prayer as it has been named. Uh, on, but on the part of temptations, which we see there in Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, and it, it specifically will be in Luke uh, 11, 4. <clears throat> but of course, we don't want to just ju- talk about temptation today. We want to actually cover all the verses, but in a very kind of just very high level uh, s- summary type way. <clears throat> what they're praying here, uh, we'll start with Matthew. Uh, the first thing we see in verse 9 is that Jesus uses our, which is a first-person plural pronoun, uh, which is implying that this prayer is for corporate worship or prayer. It's not uh, a lot of times from the Western viewpoint, especially the 21st century, 20th century, even too, it's all about the I, I, me and Jesus, me and God, and it's not our or us and Jesus. is better way to say us and Jesus, us and God, and us and our, the community. Back then, and in a lot of uh, <clears throat> cultures till today, uh, it is about the community, especially if you look over in Asia, different parts of Asia, East Asia, Central Asia, very much more about community than the individual, which is sometimes confusing to those of us who live in very individualized uh, societies. So he's talking about corporate worship and corporate prayer. Uh, what he knows is that what they'll be facing is very significant. Uh, as in what they'll be facing as followers of Jesus, what they'll be facing is very significant. Uh, only Jesus knows the trail ahead of them and how they will need to stick together in community. And that's one reason why we have this just big focus here on our Father, uh, as in not my Father, but our Father. <coughs> uh, the idea of corporate prayers is not inconsistent with what Jesus said in chapter 6, verse 5, uh, as a group of disciples could and should pray in the synagogues, but it was not about the show that the Pharisees put on. So Jesus had nothing against uh, praying out in the on the corners or in the synagogues. It was more about how they were doing it. Uh, it was not with uh, humility, and it was not with um, the righteousness that, that God deserves. Uh, their motiva- motivation, of course, and our motivation, of course, should not be to impress everyone with intelligent words, uh, which I am sometimes guilty with, and fancy phrases. Uh, but instead about developing relationship with God and amongst themselves. Another thing to note in the uh, second part of verse 9, I, I know this feels like we're maybe taking too long because verse 9 is not the, the uh, focus today, but I still want to bring it up, is, is we typically see hallowed be your name, but it could also be read as your name be honored as holy, which is a little choppier to say and doesn't flow as well with the rest of the, that prayer. But at the same time, 
is is a good way to look at that as in there to honor God through lives of righteousness and not profane God as the Pharisees that Jesus gave example of had done. Uh, a precondition for holy prayer is a life of righteousness and we can define that as you'd like. Uh, as you go into uh, verse 10, Jesus provides them with another hint that the kingdom of God is with them and now and will be with them in the future. It's a present and future reality. Jesus makes this point throughout anytime he says the, the son of man or the kingdom of God is amongst you or something related to that. If Jesus is God, then God is there. The kingdom of God is amongst the people in which Jesus is amongst as well. And we have that present time of Jesus being there with the disciples, the time he was there on earth, and the future in which he returns uh, to earth that we know from Revelation uh, 21, where you have the, the kind of the consummation of the kingdom of God uh, through the renewing of heaven and, and earth. Uh, it is, I think, for us, uh, those who believe, uh, for us to pray daily that God's kingdom comes in his full consummation. And it is our hopes of healing uh, God's creation through the full coming of God's kingdom. Let's move forward. Verse 11 is about daily dependence on God, that we are to have daily dependence on God. Uh, this points to Proverbs 30, uh, chapter 30, verses 8 through 9, uh, which states, Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me the give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Uh, which I think is a very wise proverb to look at. Uh, without going too much into this proverb, uh, it, this, is a, this is a good prayer and a reminder to help us not to forget who we are and who God is uh, and how we are dependent on him every day, even though we like to act like we're not in some cases. Uh, verse 12, we could do an entire lesson on this one. It reads that we are only to pray for forgiveness after having first expressed forgiveness to other people. Again, we have actually done this lesson as one of the first, like I think it was the first lesson we did after we introduced the book of Luke. Uh, verse 13, the verse of focus for today. This is where there has been debate regarding temptation. Is temptation the same as testing, or are they different? Can or will God tempt people? That's a question to ask. James 1.13 seems to say that God does not tempt anyone. This section of scripture kind of removes the idea of the devil made me do it, which I think sometimes people use as the excuse when actually, no, you just did it on your own. You made your own bad choice. Not saying the devil doesn't have influence over things, absolutely does, but a lot of times we make our own bad choices. So anyways, James 1.13, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Their own evil desire. Not, not dragged away by Satan and, and the evil or the, 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 the evil one, but dragged away by our own desires. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. I did an entire uh, study on the entire book of Letter of James, and uh, it's all online if everyone, anyone ever wants to go see that. Uh, so for those who like to look for contradictions to discount the scriptures, here's one that is popular of one saying that, no, Jesus, uh, <clears throat> uh, says, people said that God can tempt, God cannot tempt, can God tempt no one? I mean, there's been a lot of debate about that over, over the years. Uh, yeah, we could believe that he allows for temptation. So if God does not tempt, he can allow for it. Some actually believe that is uh, the, it is then God who's tempting people. Much like when God allows something evil to happen, he is just as complicit in the act of evil as the one who is doing the evil. So he's, if he's allowing temptation, he's just as complicit as the one who's doing the tempting. I don't know. We could think through that. 
And we will think through that as we go further into this after we spend some time with Luke. Uh, Paul, in uh, when he writes to uh, Corinth in chapter in the first, yeah, First Corinthians, ten thirteen, uh, he he comes at it from a little different angle uh, when he writes that believers will all face temptation, uh, yet we do not have to yield to it. Uh, <clears throat> and again, like I said, this is First Corinthians ten thirteen, uh, where it says, "No temptation is overtaking you except what is common to mankind." And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. I highly, highly recommend that you actually go read that entire chapter so you do not take this out of context. But what we can see from this, or what some of us can surmise from this, is that God will provide a way out. Uh, he is speaking of how the people of Israel has fallen into traps of temptation and even and evilness. Even when God allowed a way out, uh, and He they, they continued down those paths of evil and uh, or of their own desires and he is now warning them not to fall into the same trap so Paul is warning the, the church in Corinth do not fall down the same path that the people of Israel faced uh, that they, they the, the same path that they walked down because they um, allowed temptation to come to them and they did not walk away from the temp- temptation uh, they followed it and they were destroyed as a nation We'll have more of this when we get to Luke's version here in a second. But let's just wrap up verses 14 and 15. Again, another uh, lesson that ties back us to verse 12. But we know that God forgives those who truly are repentant. When we are people of true repentance, it allows for the willingness to forgive other people. All right, now on to Luke. And um, like I said, Luke 11. There we go. Uh, 1 through 4. Uh, Well, this is, of course, it's only... Four verses, so it's much shorter, and um, does not seem to be. Uh, some would say it's not even the same one that you hear from Matthew there uh, on the Sermon of the Mount. Could be, could not be, but I mean, it's hard to say. It, it seems that in in Luke's version, uh, it seems that the, the disciples are inspired by what they hear, uh, as you can see here in verse. Well, it's of course it's end uh, uh, of verse one there in chapter eleven. They were inspired by how John the Baptist taught his disciples uh, to pray. It must have been different from what the other Jews were praying, uh, and which probably had a certain style that John was very well known for. John, uh, being who he was, very much an aesthetic, uh, probably, and who where he lived and how he lived, probably did things a little bit differently, including prayer. And so these um, followers of Jesus were probably very curious of that. Again, we have the idea of temptation is, is in contrast to what Jesus faced from the devil uh, after he was baptized and spent 40 days in the desert, which we see uh, back in Luke 4, 1 through 2, or actually it's more of that. But uh, So the, the two prayers have similar themes, uh, showing us a good standard from which we can pray. They seem to have been taught at different times with different motivations uh, from the disciples to know exactly what Jesus is saying. Or the other side of it, the prayer could have been taught at the same time. Uh, or it could have been just said once. Uh, this lesson could have just been said once by Jesus and Matthew and Luke decided to treat the story just a little bit differently, which they've done. Um, and that's what we see from other authors uh, along the way as well. <clears throat> so let me let me read this and um, just so you can hear it. And it could, because before I go into this next section of discussion for it, you need to be able to hear what uh, how it sounds. And of course, you're already familiar with it because you probably either read it at some point or are reading it right now. Uh, it happened, this is chapter 11, uh, 1 through 4 of Luke. 
It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Very short, very short and sweet. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, it also seems to be a little bit more uh, informal uh, because he starts there instead of with our father, which is what have been typical, they just use father. He just uh, Luke just uses father, which, like I said, is less formal and more relational, which is good, uh, but it's uh, also <clears throat> less formal. Uh, you kind of wonder, is that how prayers were done? How is that how the Jews did their prayers? Were they, they short and informal? And I would say in some cases they were, in some cases they weren't. Uh, what is Luke trying to teach about prayer? So let's, some things that we have to look at here is that some say that he was just putting down, he wasn't actually showing a prayer or saying a prayer kind of like what we see in Matthew. He was actually putting down a list uh, to pray about and never intended for this to ever be prayed uh, corporately, like in a liturgy. And it seems it never was, at least there's no record of it. Uh, like I said, of the Matthew version, there is record of it. Uh, a strong argument that the list is very Jewish in nature, most likely is a reference to the 18 benedictions, which is found on the Mishnah, which is uh, the oral tradition, uh, rabbinic oral traditions that was uh, put together uh, very early on, of course, of the, the Jewish oral traditions. I think I said that like four times now. Uh, these benedictions were more like uh, guides than actual prayers to make similar very similar to what Luke is doing here. Uh, the benedictions would have been used in the synagogue and by individuals. Uh, of course, they had been used to teach uh, budding rabbis, uh, as well as those who are listening along in the, in the synagogues. Let's focus on the last part here of, of verse 4. Uh, Do not bring us into temptation, or as in the NSR, NRSV uh, said, bring us into trial or a time of trial. Uh, I believe King James is the only one that adds uh, deliver us from evil in this one, and it is believed that they do that. The translators of the, the, of the King James were trying to make this sound more Matthean in form, and so they added that later on uh, to, the, to Luke's text. As we know, there are many ways to look at there are many ways to look at temptation. Is it internal or is it external pressures? Uh, depends, on, depends on who you ask. Uh, <clears throat> with it saying, do not lead us into temptation, is it insinuating that God would deliberately put us into the path of temptation? And if he does, does praying to him about not putting us in the path of temptation do anything? That's one thing to think about. The word for lead can also be used as carry or even accompany to a place. So the, I, the question could then be, would, so would God carry us uh, figuratively, metaphorically? Not literally, uh, into a uh, a place of temptation. Like you wouldn't literally pick us up in places there. They couldn't. It just that's not what happens. Uh, so would God carry us into temptation and be with us when we are tempted? Uh, the word that they use uh, for for carry or uh, <clears throat> lead us into or carry carry lead us into or lead is uh, espero icefero e i s p h e r o. And it, it can really, uh, it, it's really not about leading, uh, but means placing. So to ask God for, uh, so ask, so the, the question then would be, are we asking God not to place us in a dangerous position or into dangerous territory? Uh, the word that they use here is in actually subjunctive form, which makes it uh, a whole lot more uh, possible, but not probable. So it's not impossible that God uh, would do this, but 
it's it's possible. A lot of navel gazing can go on with that word, and but let's compare the word into instead of in. So if you used into instead of in or in instead of into, uh, do not lead us in temptation versus lead us into into temptation. Uh, <clears throat> we're we're going to stick with what Luke said in this part of the of the uh, of the prayer. We, we know that in Luke's version, the Holy Spirit uh, leads Jesus in the desert rather than into the desert. When I'm talking about Jesus' temptation, I believe back in chapter 4, uh, where he is tempted by Satan or the evil one. Uh, in Luke's way of writing, God does not lead Jesus into temptation, but is with him through the Spirit when he is tempted. So it's the in leads into, or is it leads in, leads in, leads while in, Tim, being a, in a tempting time. Uh, sidebar about the time of Jesus in the wilderness. I, I found this to be fascinating. I, maybe you will too. Uh, the story of, is uh, is a pretty much a story of Israel being, uh, the story of Israel being retold by Jesus representing the Jewish people. So Jesus, uh, like Israel, had been called out of Egypt by God uh, to live a life of humble obedience like Israel was supposed to. Uh, this calling of a humble obedience was to put uh, to test in the desert. So Jesus in the desert for 40 days, the Jews in the desert for 40 years. Uh, the people, uh, what we see in this retelling with Jesus as the main characters, that unlike Israel, Israel failed. Jesus will remain faithful where Israel, of course, was not. Uh, one more side note here, just because we like side notes. The tempting of Jesus uh, and the Sermon on the Mount and the Olivet Discourse and the Transfiguration and the Extension all happen on the mountain in Galilee. There has to be some sort of significance here. I don't know exactly what it is, but it's just uh, interesting to see that. Uh, okay, back to the story. Uh, we have to also know that temptation does not have to be temptation. We don't have to even use the word temptation because it can be used, the word being used here, peresimon, P-P-E-I-R-S-A-M-O-N, peresimon, peres, yeah, is, uh, could either be testing. It could be testing or temptation, and actually depending on the context of how it is written, or the, the context in which the author thinks they're writing it, or translating it, uh, could be either testing or <coughs> tempting. Uh, we still have the question from above. Is, is God going to want to test us? Does it do any good to pray for him not to test us? It's a question about temptation. Does it do anything to pray to God not to tempt us or allow us to be tempted? Uh, let's jump ahead uh, 11 chapters. I, I think I said verses in my note. 11 chapters to, to Luke 22, where Luke uses temptation again, but in a, in a, in a little different way, but in a very significant way. Here it seems to be less about testing, uh, but more about tempting, or being in temptation. This is the night of the Passover, and they have gone up to the Mount of Olives to pray before Jesus, before Judas arrives uh, with the temple and imperial guards. In 22:28 of Luke, uh, he tells them that they are the ones who stood by him when he was tempted. But if you look in 22, verse 40, he tells them to pray so that they will not enter to, to, into temptation. He then says the same in 2246 when he has to wake them up before Judas arrives. How temptation is used here is the temptation that comes between the battle of Jesus, his disciples, and Satan. So think of it as a spiritual warfare. So let's give you an example here of what that could look like. Judas had already fallen uh, to the temptation of Satan and his own desires. 
And here it seems Jesus is praying that Peter and the others will not be victims of Satan uh, as well as their own evil desires. That's his hope. They do not want them to fall into the same trap of temptation that Judas fell into. So with this idea of Satan and temptation, let's go back to the prayer. This, this is more of a request, we could say, this is more of a request to God to protect us from Satan's power. If this is a correct understanding, then we are confessing that we are too, we are weak and that we need the strength of God to fight off Satan and our, as well as our own evil desires. It is like I say, we cannot stand up to evil on our own, so please lead us down another path. Now let's look at this same verse, but stated as, do not put us to the test. Uh, by doing this, we can argue that Jesus is using an old Jewish uh, wisdom prayer. Uh, it would read as, do not bring me into the power of a sin, a temptation, or a shame. Uh, if we were to read this in the Aramaic original, we would can read it as, cause us not to enter, or do not allow us to enter into that. So not even uh, go there. So if we go with these options, in none of these cases is God the tempter, so uh, we would not contradict what James had taught. Instead, what we see is a prayer where the person is asking God to protect a person from entering into a situation of temptation. Uh, the direction can help make the following part of Matthew 6.13 make more sense, as we could see Satan as a source of some temptation and to be rescued from him, which would rescue us thus from temptations. <clears throat> so, I'm going to leave it there because we still have to talk about the two swords and we are a half hour in and we don't want to go much later otherwise no one wants to listen anymore. So that's, that's where we are with temptation and testing and what it says in the Lord's Prayer related to temptation and where God is uh, with that and where we are related to that and where uh, Satan could be with that. But um, at the end of the day, the idea of the prayer, the, the Lord's Prayer, is to help us develop our relationship with God uh, to help our obedience with God and for us to approach God with home humility and obedience. All right. Now, let us move forward into Luke 22, 35 through 38. <clears throat> let me uh, switch these two guys here and they'll be on our way. Because you always want to look at your two translations. Let's see here. Luke 22. Not too far. There it is. Yeah. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot going on here. Uh, they, the, the guys, uh, they, they prepare for Passover. They've, they've officially done the Lord's Supper. There's a debate that's going on. I'm talking all about chapter 22 here in Luke. Who is the greatest... Uh, Jesus helps them understand that none of them are. And then there's the, the very brief moment where Jesus tells, for the most part, tells Peter, hey, you're going to deny me. Uh, Peter, of course, denies that. And then we end up where we are, where Jesus tells a story about preparation for what's to come, uh, which is similar to what we saw in Luke 10 when Jesus sent out the disciples to exercise demons and to, to go from town to town without, without anything. So... Verse 35, chapter 22 of Luke. And he said to them, When I sent you out without money, built and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? They said, No, no, nothing. And he said to them, But now whoever has a money belt is to take it along, likewise also a bag, and whoever has no sword is to, to sell what his coat, 
to sell his coat and buy one. For I, t <clears throat> for I tell you that which is written must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with transgressors, for which refers to me has its fulfillment. They said, Lord, look, ha here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. There's so much to this. You really have to understand co tone and context to really get what Jesus is trying to say here. Uh, <clears throat> and I hope that we're able to explain uh, some of this. It's only in this, and it's only in Luke where we see this story. Mark and Matthew do not bring this up. <clears throat> uh, they all talk about the Lord's Supper and they talk about Passover, but they don't talk about the swords. Now, we do know about swords in the other versions because they're used uh, on the guard, the temple guard, but only here is the swords actually discussed there at the Passover meal, Paschal meal. Yeah. Uh, it is interesting in how it is placed between Jesus' of telling of Peter's denial, coming upcoming Peter's denial, and when Jesus prays on the Mount Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane, which we'll see after this. We'll go a little bit into that as we go through this. As you can imagine, this is a hard one because uh, it, it's hard to reconcile Jesus' ministry of peace and love with a quote that could be lead to conflict and death because that was not what Jesus was about. He wasn't about conflict and death. He was about peace and reconciliation, about the renewal, uh, the coming of the kingdom of God. Uh, it has been widely believed that this was a very symbolic and was not to be taken literally. Uh, we start with a reference uh, to a previous conversation, like I said, uh, in Luke 10, 4-7, that Jesus gave to his disciples regarding what they should take with them when they go out and help and heal people of the of the region. The ideal then was that the people they would meet would supply, of course, all that they needed, so there's no reason to take any provisions. But as we have seen, a lot has happened in the last 12 chapters. Uh, Jesus is now a wanted man, possibly even referred to as a renegade or bandit who is about to face death. And it's hard for us to kind of put our heads around that Jesus would ever be a, a resurrectionist or a, a renegade. But uh, many of the Jewish leaders thought he was. Not all of them, but many of them thought he was. And they thought he was causing issues uh, amongst the Jewish people. He was causing division amongst the Jewish people. And you remember... We have to remember, historically, there were other people who would refer to themselves as the Messiah, and they would cause division or try to cause division. And it was up to the, uh, the Jewish priest to make sure that these people were no longer allowed to talk. And that usually required them to either be ran out of town or to die. And even though Jesus was probably, and by far, was the most uh, believable and of, of claimed messiahs, uh, they still were a little bit hardened about this. So you can't fully just say they're just horrible, horrible, horrible people. They're kind of doing their job to a point. They may have overdone a little bit. And of course, they were a little bit out of line anyways, based on being in the back pocket of the Romans. And uh, and the Herodians were there, and they were really in the back pocket of the Romans as they were kind of the, the puppet regime for the Jews through the Romans. So we can, we, we can give them some flack, but not, it doesn't have to be like full on. I and mean, they were partially doing their job trying to keep another false messiah out. <clears throat> so like I said, a lot has happened. Jesus possibly being a resurrectionist or named to be a resurrectionist and all of his disciples would be as well. Meaning that the folks who were at one point were probably really nice to them and more than happy to give them provisions and help them along their way would, would not be as excited about doing that, knowing that possibly they could lose their lives and their livelihoods if they were to help this resurrectionist, this rebel, this renegade. <clears throat> so you certainly, if you wanted to keep your way of life, you certainly wouldn't want to support Jesus and his disciples at this point of the journey. So this time they are to go fully prepared and armed. This would be quite surprising to his close group of disciples 
Very counter, of course, to what Jesus taught. So why in verse 36 did Jesus tell them to sell their cloak for a sword? That's that's just, it blows, it blows our minds. Uh, at least I think some people, maybe it doesn't for you, but I think for a lot of people it does. Uh, Jesus knows he is about to be condemned as a criminal by the Jewish priest and eventually by the Romans. Let's give you a little sidebar about protection during that time period. It would not be out of the ordinary for um, Jewish people, godly people, uh, devout people to carry swords. So even the, the Essenes, which were a kind of the, uh, a desert-dwelling group of people, very aesthetic in who they were, probably from about 2 B.C. to 82. Yeah, so two centuries before and two centuries after uh, Jesus. They would travel all around, and they would, they would do what the Essenes would do, and they would um, carry nothing but a sword. And the reason they carried a sword was because bandits may attack them on the road, and they had, of course, protect themselves. Uh, some say that Jesus is fe fearing or knowing that he'll be facing similar situation or that his, that his disciples will be. Um, <clears throat> and the whole idea, of course, those who are once hospitable no longer will be. I don't think that's really true. I don't think Jesus is really concerned about bandits. He is more concerned that they will be tossed into the bandit category. They, meaning his disciples, uh, and of course, based on their relationship with, with Jesus. Uh, based on this, they should act their part and carry some weapons to keep people on their toes. Uh, this is one observation regarding the sword. We have a couple others we'll talk about later. <clears throat> It'll all come together in the end, at least, I think, to a point. Uh, maybe some symbolism here with Jesus. Some have taken the purse, bag, and sword as symbolic of a kind of a spiritual pr preparation, similar to what uh, Paul talked about to the church in Ephesus when he when we see Ephesians 6, 1 through 7, 11 through 17. Related to the armor of God, uh, likely not, but it is a nice thought. Uh, in verse 37, we get an explanation about what Jesus is talking about here. A scripture or prophecy must be fulfilled. A little bit more on that here in a second. We can imagine the disciples were surprised regarding the mentioned prophecy, but in verse 38, they did not miss a beat and offered up two swords in their possession. So they weren't even really listening about the prophecy. They are more concerned about the swords. Let's talk a little bit about the sword. We see in verse 38 that the two unnamed disciples uh, take Jesus literally and seriously regarding the swords, as they then announce they have two. And if they were truly bandits in the true sense of the word of what bandits were, they would have significantly had more weaponry. So zealots, they are not. Uh, but they have been disobedient to the teachings of Jesus, or at least not full fully truthful or possibly not even 100% on board to the teachings of Jesus because I had these swords. But let's not give them too much grief yet because there's some different ways to interpret uh, these swords, these knives, these weapons. Uh, but let's continue on. Uh, the way Jesus uh, responds in the same verses, it is enough or possibly enough of this. Uh, the way Jesus concludes this conversation with it being it is enough is not a naive Jesus saying, that should do the trick. That's enough. We can handle it. Uh, it's not like that at all. It's it's at all. It's it's a note of sad irony. Uh, Jesus knows that those coming to arrest him would be well armed and some even well trained in combat. Uh, some have tried to pacify the situation, say it was not really swords Jesus was referring to, but cooking knives, and it was just translated into swords. The word uh, makaira. Uh, which could mean swords, but could also mean short dagger, uh, but not a long-bladed sword, but also could come across as kitchen knives. Uh, they would say, so those are trying to pacify this, would say that the two knives were found upstairs was to carve and serve the Paschal lamb for Passover. 
I mean, that's 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 nice. Uh, this doesn't work in my opinion because the same word for uh, Makaira is the same sort of fighting implement uh, the crowd brings to arrest Jesus in the garden. So it was some sort of weapon. It may have not been the long sword, but it was probably a dagger of sorts. <coughs> based on what we see here. Uh, another interpretation uh, regarding nonviolence is that Jesus, in verse 38, Jesus says, enough of this, instead of that's enough. So it is more of him saying, what you're saying is ridiculous, as we are not people who fight. Enough of this. We don't even fight. We're not those type of people. That's another way to look at it. He is not saying two swords again are plenty. Again, he is not saying that two swords are plenty of, plenty of weaponry uh, for 12 people. At this point, uh, our friend Judas had, had wandered off and so there's there what once we're 13 we now have 12 as we start getting close to entering the garden of gethsemane in the next several verses uh the, so the story could be that jesus is frustrated with his disciples and so abruptly just ends the conversation they, they should have known what jesus was either being sarcastic or possibly just using a metaphor we've seen jesus being quite sardonic in the past and that could be what is happening here Again, not a strong point. Why would Jesus speak of literal purchase bags and sandals, but then have a metaphor about knives, right? So, yes, these are literal bags, literal purses, literal sandals, but hey, metaphorical knives. It just it wouldn't work that way. It just doesn't seem to work. So the disciples took Jesus literally when the fact he was uh, not related to the fighting part. Uh, he knew the dangers they would face now and in the future. They were against major odds. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. <clears throat> but first we're going to talk about the prophecy. Because once we talk about the prophecy coming out of Isaiah 53, uh, then it will make more sense related to why Jesus wanted them to have swords. So, <clears throat> so it was a literal bind of swords in order to fill the Isaiah 53 prophecy. Uh, more specifically, Isaiah 53-37. Uh, we have to look at the original text to see... Oh, actually, wait, wait, wait. It's not Isaiah 53.37. It's, it's right. It, I was thinking 53.12, and it, that is 53.12. So, that's what it is. Isaiah 53.12. Okay. <clears throat> so, if you look at Isaiah 53.37, sorry, Isaiah 53.12, referencing uh, Luke 22:37, which talks about reckoned with transgressors. And you may note uh, that it's in either all caps or bullet somehow to kind of show you that it is a quote of a piece of scripture. What it says here is because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. We'll talk more about transgressors here in a second because they use transgressors a little bit differently than we do. Uh, in Isaiah, there is a reference to the servant of the Lord uh, being with others who are associated with being outlaws. It's one thing that we're looking here, the multiple transgressors. Jesus is now one of those transgressors and his disciples are now to be counted amongst them. Uh, Jesus is keenly aware of the prophecies of the past regarding him and they need to be fulfilled or at least have their end. Uh, it is like a sense of goal or sense of a goal must be met. Referencing again Isaiah 53, 12, uh, everything regarding Jesus must be fulfilled as we see in uh, Luke 24, 44, uh, which says there, these are my words I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Today we look at transgressors as a sinner, uh, and it's been very much spiritualized in our in our viewpoint, or at least the way we talk about transgressors. But the word animos, A-N-O-M-O-A-N-O, 
MOS, uh, is about someone who operate, operates outside the law, someone who's a bandit, a renegade, a resurrectionist. <clears throat> so they are, to, so they are to buy swords. They, as in the disciples, were to buy swords and sell their cloaks, so that they would be classified as lawless, a a, a armed rebellion of sorts. Uh, Jesus would be an outlaw, a transgressor, uh, and of course, depending on your translation. So, of course, we know, again, two swords would not help with any fight, but would help the authorities to name Jesus as a rebel leading an armed rebellion. That's a, there's a, lot, of, a lot of thought behind that one. <clears throat> so, of all the prophecies, why would Jesus want to fulfill this one to make him a rebel or a transgressor? Uh, we have to go to the Garden of Gethsemane to see about a mile away from where we are right now. So, as we see in verse 47 of this very same Chapter 22, uh, Luke 22, 47. The crowd came to Jesus as if he was leading an armed rebellion. They thought force would be necessary, again, as prophesied by Isaiah. Maybe they read it too and started believing, hey, maybe uh, maybe this guy is trying to follow this too. Uh, those in the rebellion, the rebellion, so I'm talking about the disciples, Jesus, as you see in verse 49, not Jesus, but the disciples are ready to strike. Again, the prophecy is being fulfilled. They fortunately, unfortunately, do not wait for Jesus to strike. They, they do it on their own. Uh, some say it was Peter, but Luke does not give us a name. You can say it was Peter, because I think Matthew says it was Peter, but Luke does not tell us. Uh, it could have gone to straight mayhem at this point, but Jesus quickly stops the fight and heals the ear of the servant. He proves that words can be more pow powerful than swords. There in verse 51. <clears throat> so what happens here is Jesus turns the mob, turns this whole situation around to where the mob is depicted as the violent ones, not Jesus. Jesus is not having some sort of armed rebellion. It is the, uh, the mob that has come, the, the guards and the priests and whoever else came along, the, the servants who are the armed ones. They're the violent ones. Jesus is not the violent one. They were coming ready for a fight. Jesus was not coming ready for a fight. Uh, and unfortunately, the, one of the disciples thought they were, uh, and that's just unfortunate. But Jesus, of course, heals the servant's ear. <clears throat> uh, we know that from chapter 7, verse 16 of Luke, that Jesus is a prophet, so must die a prophet's death in Jerusalem, which is in chapter 13, 33. Uh, Jesus is a servant, as we know from chapter 22, 27, and must die a servant's death that we get from Isaiah 53, 12. His experience in the next couple of hours will complete this prophecy. Now, some people have taken this literal and will not walk away thinking that there's no way that Jesus was talking about this armed rebellion and fulfilling this prophecy and that literally Jesus wants us to uh, buy weapons and to defend ourselves. And we've had some religious leaders recently do that and they, they were wanting to do this against, uh, take up arms against Muslims and who are in our country or people from Mexico or anyone that we find to be a little bit different. And I, that is not, and that is a outright, criminal level of misinterpretation of the scripture. I, they, they're not the first ones. It's, it's happened throughout time. I mean, if you look back at St. Bernard or, uh, of, of Clairvaux or Pope, Pope Boniface the, the Eighth, uh, they also uh, advocated for, for, armed, uh, for the bearing of arms. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He is not talking about and he is not advocating to bear arms. That is, that's just was completely against his nature and his spirit. What he was trying to do was fulfill the laws and the prophets and to make sure that you know, things were to go as God had intended them to go. 
So please, please don't take this line, this line of scripture, the scripture in a way that we have to go arm ourselves and go shoot people that, or stab people, or whatever we want to do to people that we don't like or agree with, or are different color or from different countries. So that's not at all what this is about. So, all right, that's a fun way to end it, huh? So here we are done with uh, the hard sayings of Jesus. And uh, we'll pick something else up here in a couple months as we decide what's the next topic of the time. And I hope everyone has a great Easter and a good rest of your week. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.